Hi, and welcome to the second half of today's Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Katie Myers. October 11th, once known as Columbus Day, is now recognized as Indigenous Peoples Day in recognition of the long, violent history of settler colonialism in the Americas. Indigenous activists say that violence against Indigenous people takes many forms and continues into today in the form of resource extraction, pollution, and continued theft of land. Just east of the Grand Canyon, the Navajo Nation covers an area the size of West Virginia. There, extraction of oil, gas, coal, and uranium, and even water has impacted the health and safety of local people, who refer to themselves as Diné, or the people, even as they worked in these industries to survive. Today, we're talking to Carol Davis, coordinator of grassroots organization Diné Care, about her work to protect indigenous land and water resources from resource extraction. Carol lives and works in the Navajo Nation. With Diné Care, she works on issues that might be familiar to many of us here in Appalachia, the impacts of the coal industry and the big question of what comes next. Here's Carol. So my name is Carol Davis. I am the executive director of Dines Citizens Against Ruining Our Environment. We are um, a all Navajo nonprofit environmental justice, social justice organization that has operated within the Navajo Nation reservation for the past 30, 32 years now. Um, I joined in 2015 and um, it, it's always been a small organization, but we're in the, pa- in the process of growing. But we, we focus on a lot of coal facilities issues and also oil and gas development issues. So our work is in um, New Mexico and in Arizona. Denek here, um, what, it started with in a small community in the southwestern portion of the Navajo Nation in Delcon, Arizona. Um, it began because there was a toxic, a medical toxic waste incinerator that was proposed for development within the community. And because of a language barrier, it was misinterpreted. We don't, you know, we're assuming it was most likely intentional because we understand there were payoffs at the time. But it was in- interpreted into the Navajo language to the people who approve such a development as being really nothing more than a trash dump. Resource development was something that really came to the Navajo Nation in the 1920s. And that's actually the reason why our government was even established because um, federal government wanted to work with energy or, you know, resource developers, um, companies, oil developers, coal coal companies. They wanted to streamline a process to lease um, reservation lands for their use um, for over long periods of time. Like um, in the 40s, we had the Navajo Generating Station and the coal mines that were associated to that, the Kianta coal mine, the Black Mesa coal mine. And those are still barely in the process of closing. But these are huge, just basically holes in the ground right in the middle of where people live. Um, and so strip mining is is more what, what they've been doing in those areas. But um, not only that, but in, in the Four Corners region, which is New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, in that area back in the 20s, um, especially on the Navajo Reservation side, there was a lot of oil development too. Um, and so right now there's areas where there's a lot of plugged or abandoned capped wells 
Um, you see pipes everywhere all over the place. And one of our concerns, of course, is just the slow emissions of gases, predominantly methane. Um, so there's a lot of these issues that, that have impacted our communities because, you know, um, energy development, of course, is very water intensive, um, often very energy intensive, requiring a lot of power. Um, <clears throat> and this is taking place in place in, right in the middle of communities where people don't even have water. Um, you know, we have to haul water. I still have to haul water. We have a cistern and septic system. And um, I pay $40 for 900, for 900 gallons of water. Whereas, you know, we were selling our water to Navajo Generating Station and back in the early, in the, in the early 19, uh, 1990s, we had the Mojave Generating Station. And, you know, they were paying nothing to use our water. Meanwhile, our water tables are depleted. Our seeps and springs are drying out. Um, there's just a lot of, the drought is making it worse. A lot of our cultural foods, it's, it's impacted our ability to grow the food that sustains us. Um, coal mining, for example, coal ash has, um, the fugitive dust has impacted our cultural resources. For example, we, um, we use juniper ash and we mix that with um, blue corn when we're making our traditional blue corn mush. And somehow, um, I guess, um, it's been found that by adding the juniper ash when we're making we're, when we're making our traditional food, it somehow increases or brings a lot of calcium to that to that dish. And so, not knowing that, you know, that's something that Navajos have have been eating for generations. So we can't even. We were, it's limiting our access in the black in the Black Mesa area to to juniper ash because you have fugitive dust that's landing on these trees, and you, we all know that they have a lot of toxic metals in there that does contribute to the occurrence of cancer, respiratory disease, heart disease, and those are rampant in our Navajo communities and especially in areas where we have energy development, which both oil and gas and coal production or um coal mines and power plants. When these um, energy producers are closing their facilities, we wanna make sure that there's just transition funding for these communities that have sacri sacrificed a lot. There has not even been any economic development. There has, you know, a lot of people had to give up their right to have a water line built to their homes or a power line brought to their homes. And these are sacrifices that people made for almost half a decade in the coal impacted communities just so that the rest of Arizona, Nevada, and California could live a, a good quality of life with electricity, for you know, cheap electricity when these communities didn't have that. So that's a big part of our work right now is making sure that um, utility companies reinvest in the communities that they profited millions, possibly even billions of dollars. Yeah, you definitely brought up a big buzz phrase that I, I would love to talk about more in depth, which is just transition, which of course, you know, mm -hmm. we talk about here all the time. And like, in my experience, sometimes, you know, it can mean a lot of different things depending on who's talking about it. So I would love to hear from you, like specifically what that means for your community. So for Navajo communities, um, just transition, first and foremost, is making sure that 
um, there's some reinvestment in those communities, be it economic development, um, you know, contributing to um, renewable energy development. Um, because like I said, um, just in the Navajo Generating Station, um, Black Mesa area, you know, I, that's an area where a lot of people, there was forced relocation just to accommodate the development of the coal mine, the coal facilities. You know, people were removed from their homes, but that's something that of course they're not, that's, that's a whole different issue. Um, what we're looking at is um, making sure that there's water line, power line, um, maybe even solar powered parking for a lot of the, the, the facilities in the communities like schools, for example. Um, we don't have a lot of um, development in these communities, but I think it's, it's incumbent on these utility companies that are leaving that they need to reinvest to help ensure that those communities will thrive in the future. You know, we wanted to have people that were basically losing their jobs either be um, retrained for other things or relocated to other places. And we really don't know if that really happened because there was a really big push from the coal mine, Peabody, Peabody Western Coal Company. They basically had, you know, the, the, the union on their side. And so we didn't, it was contentious between the work that we were trying to do and trying to advocate for their rights. And, and they were just really siding with Peabody and, and they said, Oh, everything's great. And, you know, we, we were provided sometimes what we felt was false information. Um, but, you know, when we were out in those communities, we heard different from people who were working for the power plant or the coal mine, you know, a lot of them were, um, wanting to sign petitions that we had saying that they agreed that the coal, those facilities needed to close because number one, they were unsafe, um, that, you know, um, employees were not treated fairly. Um, just a lot of issues that they wanted to confide in us, but they didn't want to go on record for that. So just, it, it was just really hard to, to, to join forces with the workforce and advocate for their rights because, Again, you know, somehow the Peabody had had already created a lot of division just within their own organization. So it just made it really hard for us to work for that part of the just transition funding. But like I said, you know, we still want to see that these people that are now going to be without jobs to make, you know, we're hoping that a lot of them were retrained, especially young ones. We, I, I have family members who told me, yes, I knew it was going to close I'm retired. I'm fine with it. Um, but again, there's a lot of the workforce that were also young. And so we're just hoping that they had other t opportunities that the owners had um, helped them gain access to. With the coal, just with this, um, the, the Navajo Generating Station, Kienta Mine, Black Mesa Mine, just, just those related facilities. Um, what we understand and what, what some of my relatives had confided is that, you know, like I said, they knew that this was scheduled for closure, um, even when it was first just being talked about for early closure in 2017, they still had people had at least two years knowing that, you know, they could find another job or seek um, retraining um, or something. In, in a lot of cases, people retired. But what we found was because there was that advance anticipation of closure already, there was already 
um, some decrease in employment. The workforce was already being reduced. Um, and so at the final date of closure, when the doors shut back in you know, mid 2019, well, actually the doors shut in December, 2019, and they stopped operation um, just the beginning of last year. But what, um, what we understood was just like for Navajo Generating Station alone, there was like maybe less than 375 people that were still employed at that time. So it's not like huge masses of the Navajo workforce were affected. No, um, less than what I, from what we understand, less than 400 people at the end were, were impacted. And, and that had, I think at its peak, the numbers that we were being told was somewhere around maybe and this is not just um, Navajo Generating Station, but it's also the coal mines and, and the contractors that supplied the work there. We were told that it was about around 3,000 is what that workforce was. Um, and again, of course, that workforce doesn't necessarily mean those were Navajo families. A lot of them were not. I don't know this, the, the exact percentage. I think people had said it was like 75 to 80% of the workforce at its peak was not just Navajo, but um, Native American. That could have been Apaches, Hopis, Yavapais, whoever. Um, people knew it was closing. People, a lot of people did prepare for the closure and less than 400 were the ones that, you know, um, were working at the very end. And was there like opposition in the community to the closure of, of these, you know, of coal facilities or like to, to what degree was that an issue? The visible opposition that we saw, well, there were there were a lot of comments on um, our Diné Care social media, um, but we did understand that a lot of those were people who were family members to people that were employed there. Um, a lot of them were people who were former workers, but like I said, not all the former workers opposed it either. We had a lot of support from former members of that workforce who supported closure. Um, but yes, opposite, opposition was there. What was really obvious when it came to the Navajo Nation Council, when they were gonna make the decision on whether or not they were gonna buy Navajo Generating Station and continue it, what we saw was Peabody Western Coal was bussing in um, some of their workers and they had t-shirts and they were feeding them burgers and, you know, they made it kind of like a party. And what was funny was I was there at council chambers and I sat next to some of these people and, and we were just communicating because they didn't know who I was. So I was just asking, I asked them, why, why are you guys here? What, what's, what's this about? You know, trying to play naive. They didn't even know what they were there for. One guy said, oh, we were just told to be here and that we would have food and get free t-shirts. Wow. And they were busting from some, yeah, they were busting from Paige. So a lot of those people had no idea. They were just, it, it was just a show of force, getting free t-shirts, getting baseball caps. Um, we had Navajo Nation Council members who were um, coming in with Peabody Western Coal baseball caps. I mean, it was so blatant that people were being bought at the time. But we are very fortunate that in the end, it did not happen. It wasn't, you know, I don't recall seeing owners of Navajo Generating Station coming in and trying to keep it going. We saw the coal, the people that were operating the coal. They're the ones that were trying to pay people to come in and, and they had all the media and they're the ones that whatever 
were working directly with the the union, the coal mine, the coal miners union, um, because you know we sat next to these people. I we kind of knew who was who, like um, the the I don't know what it's called, the the, the president of the local union. Um, yeah, we knew who she was, and you know she was very friendly with with um, the owners, and and it just felt it just seemed like oftentimes that she was more a spokesperson for Peabody than she was for her workers, because like I said, we spoke with a lot of workers who did support closure. But what are sort of the natural resource fights going forwards that you see? So um, one of the things that we know that our council is sort of entertaining is helium mining. Um, As I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of these capped oil wells, oil and gas wells from as early as the 1920s that just litter the entire four corners region of the Southwest. And so there's, I think there's a company Tacitus is one of them who is looking into um, helium extraction. Um, And I know that is something that is also taking place right there on one of our sacred mountains, just North of the the heart of our our Navajo nation um, in the Cheska mountains Cheska Mountains is one of the sacred mountains. You know, it's culturally sacred to our people. It's a place where a lot of our herbalists um, collect um, herbs um, um, for medicinal use or even for tobaccos or different types of medicines. Um, and so what, what we have seen that's happening just right there in the Cheskas, and that's actually where our, um, our board president she lives in those mountains. What we know is there's extraction, gas extraction taking place right now. And we've had some FLIR cameras that we've taken with um, Earthworks and some of our um, community volunteers. And we've actually seen just a lot of leak- leakage. Um, we had samples that were taken and Earthworks um, paid for, you know, the, 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 analysis of the gases that were being emitted and what they found was you know of all the different gases that were being emitted there was deadly gases that are 10 times what the that exceed 10 10 times epa standards is what we were told for being in communities where there might be residents um in in some proximity and so we know like there's there was a house in one place where i think the house was maybe 350 yards from one of those wells that was, you could just see gases coming from it. And then what people in those areas have told us, and of course they want to remain anonymous is, you know, the frack water that they're using because to, um, to, to do helium mine um, fracking, it's the same process as oil and gas fracking. So they're injecting the earth with a lot of toxic and even radioactive chemicals. And they also do get some of the frack water, the wastewater that comes back out. And so they're supposed to be, um, traditionally in New Mexico, what happens is those are supposed to be put into a lined um, pond, a lined collection pond, a wastewater pond. But what people are saying is, you know, when they, when they collect that wastewater in certain places, they just dump it on the side of the mountain and there's no regard for the people that live on those mountains. So, we just feel like there's definitely got to be um, a lot of water contamination, soil contamination. We know that people are being exposed to very toxic, deadly gases. Um, 
but it's in the heart of the Navajo Nation. And, and you know, these are things that we're, we're trying to educate our own tribal leaders of these issues that are going on. And we're developing reports and doing some research that we're collecting um, for, for this, this helium work. And then we're also doing this on coal ash. Um, those are things that, you know, tools that we're hoping to create that our own Navajo um, leadership and decision makers will really seriously consider before they continue supporting any kind of energy development, because there's a lot of things that are happening. You know, our water is getting contaminated. Our, our water resources are depleting. Our ground levels are depleting. Um, there's so much drought, even in the Four Corners area. You know, I was out there about a month ago with community people. Um, we were developing some videos and some of the people that have lived there all their lives were telling us that um, ever since the power plants, San Juan Generating Station, the Four Corners Power Plant, which are like 11 miles with, within each other, people are saying that when the rain when the rains start to come in, it just completely goes around that spot. So there's like this heat shield that's been developed that prohibits even any moisture. And we were in those areas that are directly affected. And honestly, we spent a whole day out there. This was, um, I think it was early June, just a couple months ago. It was like a desert. I felt like I was on the moon because it just seemed like everything was dead. I didn't see an ant. I didn't see a lizard. If anything, I would have thought I would have seen a snake, but nothing. Plants are dying. And, and this is because of, you know, 50 years of those power plants operating right there. Um, and people don't see that. People don't know that. And so that's why we've been creating videos to really educate the public and people and, and share this information. We're trying to get story, collect stories from people that live in these areas themselves and putting their voices out there is what we try to do. And we're, we're hoping that um, by educating our own tribal leaders um, about the adverse impacts of the energy development that they seem to support, we're hoping that they will really see the benefits of, of transitioning towards renewable energy. That's ideally what we want. We are all for um, wind, um, wind turbine and um, solar panel. There's actually a couple of different things going on. Are you talking about the one in the Kianta area where it's Kianta Solar Farm 1 and 2? We were really happy to see that. Um, there were local people who gave up their grazing rights, basically gave up the rights to use their land and you know donated that for this purpose. Um, but yeah, we saw that there was, I think it was 25 point one megawatts at solar Kanta farm one Kanta farm two was also supposed to be the same amount so it would double the capacity and I, i'm not really current on what's going on currently um, especially since the pandemic last year but um the year before the last i remember was um they were looking for land elsewhere possibly even well also in new mexico but um somewhere in arizona i believe um towards the Grand Canyon side, north of Flagstaff, they were looking at developing another farm. And I don't know what the capacity of that farm was, but even back in um, 2018, when we saw that, when I attended the grand opening of that first farm, they were already able to supply all of the power needed for that entire Kianta community. 
And that's a large community. We really have only a handful of main hubs on the Navajo Nation, and that would be Windorock, Shiprock, Chinle, Kiyunta, Tuba City. Those are like the main places. And um, so it, it supplied all of that, and it also put a lot of that power back into those lines. So we like that. We support that. The only thing that didn't happen, though, was I believe the, the customers continued to pay the same or maybe they provided like a 5% discount. I don't know. But um, it, it really, the end user, I guess, didn't really see any change in their um, in the power, in, in their use and, and, and their cost, like their rate paying. But um, as far as, you know, the success of that, I, I believe it was really successful. And, and we're, we're supporting that. Um, although we do understand that to develop these big solar farms, you need huge masses of land. And that's the tricky part. Um, I think that's, that's where, you know, a lot of energy companies run into business site leasing issues on the Navajo Nation. And that adds to the whole complication of developing something on the Navajo Nation. But I do see a move towards that because <clears throat> on the New Mexico side, because they already have their goals of, you know, um, 100 percent um, renewable energy by I think it was 2050. I, or I don't remember the exact year, but anyway, since they already have their their standards in place and set in law, um, a lot of energy companies now have to incorporate a lot of renewable energy into the energy that they sell and that they offer to customers. So we know based on the state having that move, it's going to push, you know, um, four corners power plant owners and operators um, to have to change how they develop their power and, and what kind of power. I mean, there's just this move away from fossil fuels especially in New Mexico. We're hoping Arizona will follow suit, but right now Arizona's not so, they're just really behind and difficult. I'm curious just to close out if there's like anything I didn't ask about that you'd like to share, particularly like anything positive, organizing wins um, or that you think is relevant for our listeners to hear. So I think the pandemic has really um, affected the way our organization normally engages our Navajo public and our leadership. But at the same time, it's also given us the tools to be more creative in how we engage people. Um, and, and in some ways it's actually been very good. We've had some successful wins um, in addition to the environmental justice, social justice work, we also started in 2020, we started working on doing elections work. And we were really successful in getting a lot of people engaged. We had a lot of contacts that we, we registered a lot of people. Um, and we did this all remotely. But you know, sometimes we couldn't. There was one time um, when I sat in a remote area at the crossroads near an elementary school in a remote area using my cell phone as a hotspot and using my laptop to register people that did not speak English because they wanted to, you know, they wanted to vote. I had elders that told me that had, they had never voted 
in a presidential election, but they felt like they really needed to. So um, I, I feel, honestly, I feel like the pandemic brought a lot more attention to some of these issues. I think the education that we've been trying to put out, not, not just Diné Care, but with a lot of the other organizations, sister organizations that we work with, like TNA, which is Twinajuma and Ne. Um, their whole focus is, you know, the, the coal facilities and, and because they're the people come from the Black Mesa area. Um, and then Black Mesa Water Coalition, Black Mesa Trust, these are organizations that we've worked closely with, Grand Canyon Trust over the pandemic, planning, strategizing, um, developing media campaigns. And I really feel like there's a little, it's, it just seems to me like people are a lot more aware. Um, even on the New Mexico side, we had this totem that was traveling across the United States that was visiting sacred sites. And it did, we had one of the stops at, for the Chaco um, National Park. And so that was a really good turnout. There's a lot of involvement. A lot of young people are getting involved. Um, so those are the successes that we have had during the pandemic is just really bringing attention to a lot of the issues, people learning more and people wanting to take more and wanting to be part of the solution. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity too. Thank you. That's all for today's Mountain Talk. You heard from Carol Davis, coordinator of grassroots organization Denae Care, about economic transition and land defense in the Navajo Nation. You can learn more about Denae Care and support their work at dine-care.org. From your friends here at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.